0: Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode 3.3, Protected by the Sea. The Yamuna River is a remarkable thing. It starts up in the Himalayas, in the mountains, and then it runs down onto the plains and past some of the most remarkable monuments in India. It goes right past the walls of the old medieval forts in Old Delhi and it goes on, it skirts right past the back of the Taj Mahal. Finally, it joins up with the great river Ganga. And just there, where those two waters meet, there's another great monument. An old fort, its feet dipping almost right down to where the two rivers meet. And parts of the fort are crumbling a little bit, you'll see the odd tree growing out of the wall, or grass on top of the windows. But much of the fort's in a pretty solid state, and you can go inside part of it. Inside's all the usual medieval fort stuff, and also, if you go past the sadhus, and down some stairs, you'll find an old underground temple, and every niche is filled with a statue of a god or a goddess. But we aren't interested in any of that today. The Indian army still occupies part of the fort, and it's in that part of the fort, the occupied part... Uh, that we want to go. It's closed off to the public unless you get special permission. Inside, if you get the special permission, you'll find a pillar of polished stone tapering up, and at the top, a statue of a single lion. The pillar is one of Ashoka's famous pillars, the ones he constructed around India to carry his message of dharma, his message of virtue to his people the very first bit of writing we get that we can translate from ancient India, right back at the very opening of history. And this pillar used to have one of those beautiful Mauryan statues carved at the top. Over the centuries that's been destroyed or lost, and now there's this 19th century attempt at a lion on top. It's a pretty pathetic attempt too. It's been said that it looks more like a poodle than a lion. But let's forget the poodle. It's the pillar itself we care about. Because on the smooth, elegant sides of that pillar, three empires meet. Three inscriptions from the three greatest empires of India. The oldest inscription is from Ashoka himself and from his queen. It's a pretty long inscription actually, it contains all the inscriptions from all the other pillars. Ashoka's messages to his people about how to live a virtuous life and so forth. And it's also got a message to the Buddhist community telling them not to split up. And it's also got a message from the queen talking about her charity. Those are the oldest inscriptions. The most recent inscriptions are the words of a late medieval emperor. The words are actually written right over the top of Ashoka's original words. It takes a tremendous amount of confidence and guts to write over what Ashoka said. Actually, the emperor who wrote the most recent inscription also uprooted the pillar and moved it. The pillar wasn't in Allahabad in this fort originally. It was a day's walk away in the ancient city of Kosambi but all of that is a story for a later series. We're here, not for the earliest inscription or the most recent, but for the middle one. It's written in a late Brahmi script, but the words are pure Sanskrit. It's an elegant mixture of prose and poetry. It was written, in fact, by a poet. But he wasn't just a poet. He was also something like a policeman, an enforcer of the law. And, when he wasn't composing poems or condemning people to prisons, he somehow managed to find the time to run the royal kitchens. But not just that. In addition to being a poet, a policeman, and a kitchen manager, he was also the royal minister for war and peace. The secretary of state, the foreign minister. And this prestigious poet uses the pillar to tell the story that he would know best. The story of the conquests of his emperor. And the emperor's name? Samudragupta, which means protected by the sea. Yes, we've got to that point in the story. Samudragupta. If you've not heard the name before, well, go back and check the previous episode. But if you hadn't heard the name before that, this is one of the big boys of ancient Indian history. Almost a household name. And definitely right at the top, or towards the top, of everyone's top 20 ancient Indian emperors of all time list. Samudragupta was the great conqueror of Indian history. He calls himself victor of a hundred battles with the skill of a tiger, exterminator of all kings. And those aren't empty words. He really is a great conqueror. He's a greater conqueror than Ashoka the Great, a greater conqueror even than Kanishka the Great. Those men, they inherited large and stable empires and expanded them. But Samudra Gupta, he inherited just a kingdom And he formed a huge empire which reached from one side of India to the other. Its toes in the Bay of Bengal, and its tips of its hair in the Arabian Sea. And its influence spread far beyond that. Samudra Gupta is actually often compared to Napoleon. People call him the Indian Napoleon. I mean, not back then, obviously. They do it now, but even now, it doesn't quite hit the mark. Because, as we shall see when we take a look at Samudra's character he's as different from Napoleon as a conqueror can get. We're going to have at least a couple of episodes on this chap. In this episode, we're going to go from Samudra's inheriting the kingdom to the end of his first campaign, the Naga campaign, or to give it a rather grander title, the Snake Wars. Samudra as a young man was in the unusual position of being the heir to not one but two kingdoms. His father was king of the Guptas, so he was about to inherit that kingdom. And his mother, she was princess of the Lichavis, so he was about to inherit that kingdom too. When we left Samudra last episode, his father was giving him a big hug, right there in the middle of the assembly, surrounded by all the Gupta and the Lichavi advisers, and Samudra's brothers too. Their father was demonstrating to everyone, this is my favoured son. This is the son who will inherit the kingdom. And we heard how, after that, there might have been something of a civil war. How one of his brothers, bitter at being overlooked, might have gone off to the old heartlands of the Gupta Empire. And there, stoked up resentment and hatred of this alliance with the Lachavis with their weird Buddhist leanings, and started a civil war. But that brother might not have existed. And even if he was more than a phantom, he was pretty soon beaten. Samudra took his place, just as his father intended, as inheritor of the two kingdoms, the Guptas and the Lichavis, now in his person fused into one. Around the same time that Samudra was inheriting those two kingdoms, but way out to the west of him, there was another young man, inheriting not two kingdoms, but two empires. This was a crowning moment, literally, of course, but it was also a crowning moment in the sense that it was a plan coming together. Back in Samudra's father's day, the large kingdoms, the large power players in northern India were the Nagas, the snake people, particularly the Barashiva group, and the Varkartakas, the mountain people. The Nagas, the snakes in the north, and the mountain people in the south. And these two great powers had made a marriage alliance, and that alliance had produced a son. The son's name was Rudra, the god of war from the oldest of Brahminical texts. He who wears a helmet, he who bears a curious. So this fiercely maimed man was inheriting two empires. So Rudra would have been worried. But actually his worry might have turned to pleasure. Because Rudra didn't rule those two empires for long. A relative on the snake side, on his mother's side, seized control of the Naga lands to the north. And then started to invade the Varkataka, the mountain people lands to the south. So these two once allies were thrown into war against one another. Samudra spotted weakness. He prepared his army, and the head of his army was a standard. A tall pole, six or seven foot tall, and on top of that, Garuda. Garuda's uh, a bird part bird, part human uh, figure from myth, it's the vehicle of Lord Vishnu. So the Garuda standard is up there, the trumpet sounded, and the army marched off, upstream, towards those two fighting enemies, launching what one historian called a blitzkrieg up the Ganga. First, Samudra attacked the old Nagas, the old Nagas, what the ancient Indians called them, south of the river, down in Matura, in the old outlands of the old empire. They had, it seems from the coins, quite a powerful and rich empire down there. The coins are scattered around liberia across a, bro- a broad area. They were squashed, they were reduced to a note in Samudra's story. Their king was captured and exterminated, and their lands were added to Samudra's own territory. Samudra moved on, further upstream. Another Naga king, him himself killed, exterminated, and his lands added to Samudra's empire. But Samudra was a long way from done. He took his army again, the trumpet sounding again, and marched off upstream again, and finally came to what the ancient Indians called the new Nagas. These were the Naga group that were allied with the mountain people to the south, the powerful ones, the big boys in the area, and they were the ones who had been busy fighting their would-be ally the Gupta army arrived, and set about trying to destroy this, their most powerful enemy yet. And the Nagas must have been cunning and powerful. But the tale goes that the king of the Nagas had a traitor in the ranks. A minor bird. Minor birds are those small birds you'll spot all over India and Southeast Asia. They're as common as starlings, really. They're everywhere. And this minor bird somehow learnt the Nagas' strategy. And then he published the message. Now, I'm not quite sure how that happened, because minor birds don't talk as a rule. They're not parrots. But that's all the tale says. In fact, that isn't really a tale at all, by the way. It's just a one-sentence summary, uh, part of a a later book describing a different king. It's part of a long list which might be titled, Kings Coming a Cropper in Amusing Ways. One king had a secret heard by a parrot, which talked. Another king uh, talked to people in his sleep. His enemies heard the plan and killed the king. One Greek king was writing letters, and there was a slave behind him with a fly whisk, and he read the letters in the reflection of the crown, and he talked to an enemy. Another king, actually someone we talked about, loved plays. Loved plays so much that he lost his head, literally. Actors came out and attacked him, cut off his head with a sword. Another king loved music and invited some musicians to play, but they were assassins and they had knives hidden in their instruments. And in another story, the most outlandish one yet, a king had an infatuation for stories about selling human flesh, and a vampire came along and killed him. The list is, as you can tell, really quite entertaining, and there are plenty of other tantalising one-line stories, including everything from rhinos to elixirs of life to treasure buried in caves. Some of those stories we know from other sources and we've already told in this podcast, and other those stories we've yet to tell. Actually, where were we? We were with Samudra, and he'd heard from the minor bird the enemy strategy. He smashed that power, he executed their king, took their land, and added it to his own. When Samudra blew the conch horn, that clear, cool sound passing over the battlefield, the traditional sound to mark the end of battle. When the dust settled, Naga power, which had been predominant in that whole region and been a major threat to the Guptas, had been subdued forever. And the Gupta lands were multiplied in size tremendously. So that was the snake campaign, the snake wars. It's all condensed into just two or three lines on that pillar we talked about at the beginning. Actually, there's one more story, which is amusing in a sort of also-in-the-news way. There was another enemy of the Guptas, probably ruling a kingdom just past the Nagas he had just beaten. But the king seems to have been a bit of a playboy, because he came to Kanauj, the city of the hunchback maidens, which was in Gupta territory now. And it was a city of luxury. It was famous for its perfumes. And the king had come there to play and have fun. And he was captured. In a not-so-amusing twist, he was executed and his lands were added to the Guptas. Samudra Gupta was on a roll. Samudra's work wasn't done yet, though. Because the other side of that enemy alliance was still there. South, up in the mountains, that emperor of two empires was still around. He was no longer emperor of anything, but he was still in charge of a sizable territory up in the mountains, and perhaps in some of the jungles a bit further north too. And it wasn't just him, his family ran a large empire between them, uh, up there on the Deccan Plateau and out towards the west, towards modern-day Mumbai. The mountain people... The Valkartikas, they were still in the game, but not for long. Samudra headed to a town called Iran. Now, Iran is now a, a sleepy village. Actually, I've not been there, but it seems sleepy from the satellite photos. It's certainly small, only a few dozen houses, and it's, it's nested, it's kind of crooked away in the bend of a river. In ancient times, it was bigger, but still not huge. And its importance in ancient times was from its location. It was on a major route from the mountains, the Deccan Plateau, uh, to the south, uh, up to the Gupta lands in the north. And it also had good access to the jungles where the Vakatakas still held their power. It was also a really good place to hold a battle. That bend in the river where the village is currently nestled, that made it very easy to defend. Because you had the river completely encompassing you on three sides. And on the other side, the side away from a river, there was a wall and there were defensive earthworks. This was one of those places that over history saw battle after battle in age after age. One of those great battlefields where generation after generation died. To this formidable place, Samudra came with his army. And he was on his way to bring the Valkartikas to heel, And that he did. Their king, the emperor of two empires, he was killed. And the northern part of the lands in the jungle was absorbed into the Gupta Empire. The Gupta Empire now became something huge and monstrous. The Valkartikas, they survived though. Up on the Deccan Plateau to the south. No longer emperors, of course, but a new king a son of the old one who had just been killed. He took charge, and he's going to appear again in a later episode in a quite surprising way. It's a bit unfortunate that we can't do more to reconstruct how these campaigns went. On that pillar we mentioned, all we get are the name of the people who were defeated by Samudra. We don't even get the order properly, and we can only reconstruct so much from archaeology. But we can tell there's a big difference in outlook between the Guptas and the foes they'd beaten, the snake people and the mountain people. All three groups were devotees of Brahminical orthodoxy, and all three were also very tolerant of Buddhism. But there was a difference in the style of Brahminical orthodoxy they were interested in. The Guptas, they were especially devoted to Vishnu, and the Barashiva Nagas and their Varkataka allies, they were especially devoted to Shiva. So they focused on different gods, and this gave them slightly different outlooks. For instance, it would have shaped the way that they thought about war and conquest. Because back then, at that point in time, Shiva was thought to be a bit more austere. He wasn't connected with material splendour. He was the god of destruction. Vishnu, he came with more riches. Now, each of the devotees claimed at one point or another that Shiva or Vishnu or whoever was superior to the other gods. And followers of Vishnu, for example, they seemed to say things like all the other gods are just avatars of Vishnu. Some of them did. So each of them thought that their way of looking at the world was better. And for the people following Vishnu, war and conquest was something that you ought to do and it ought to be combined with riches and glory. It's quite different for the devotees of Shiva, where conquest might be part of the story, but it should come with austerity and a sort of restraint. But don't get me wrong, this is nothing like two different religions, and there's no possibility that Samudra was invading them because he disagreed with them about which god was more important, or anything like that. It's just two people, two groups following Brahminical orthodoxy, but with different emphasis, different tone, and maybe just a slightly different culture too. For example, they might well have celebrated different festivals. But we shouldn't overstate this. Actually, at the time in this part of Indian history, Shiva was much more widely popular than Vishnu. Many more people were devoted to him, and that's true even in the Gupta territories. So although Samudra was personally devoted to Vishnu, lots of the people around him, even his advisors, would have been devoted to Shiva. And in fact, some of his descendants were devoted to Shiva too. But as we'll see later, the fact that Samudra was personally devoted to Vishnu shaped the way he looked at the world, shaped his outlook. And it also shaped what it meant for him to be a great king. Samudragupta, the great conqueror, had defeated the biggest powers in northern India. But his army didn't rest. It marched on, up and down the river Ganga, sweeping up the smaller kingdoms, the independent republics, securing the whole of the Gangetic Plain for him. Samudra Gupta took his army downstream, and that was probably because he wanted to be part of international trade. Now, he could have gone west, he could have gone upstream and then down to the coast, the west coast of India. But in between him and the west coast of India, there were people who were still far too powerful for him to want to take on without need. The Varkartikas, the mountain people were still there, and some of the foreign people were still there, ruling with a mighty fist. So, Samudra took his army east instead, towards the Bay of Bengal. And there he would have a connection not with Rome, like the West, but with China, Burma, Malaysia, Sri Lanka, and the East Indies Spice Islands. There was a sea route going from the Bay of Bengal, and there's also a land route going through Assam and Burma, up, up, up around, uh, around the top of modern-day Bangladesh. So Samudra went and attacked Bengal, and took hold of the city controlling the mouth of the Ganga. Tamrlipati. Ships sailed from there to Malaysia and Burma and so forth, and it was a vast emporium. It's just plenty of trade coming in and out of there. It was also connected by land routes to the major Bengali cities. So Samudra took a control of a smaller kingdom that ruled all of this. A wise move and a fine addition to his lands, you'd think. But Samudra didn't take the kingdom. He didn't even execute the king. He let the king continue ruling, and all that little king had to do to keep his little kingdom was to promise to obey any command that Samudra gave him, and pay all kinds of taxes. That's literally what it says in the Sanskrit, all kinds of taxes. Nice to know the Sanskrit for that one. Oh, and also, this little king had to come to Samudra's palace and bow down before him. And this wasn't a one-off, letting the king keep ruling his kingdom. Samudra was going to do it over and over. For all of these little border kingdoms, he was going to let the king live and rule, and not take the lands and add them to the Gupta Empire. Why Samudra? Why not add these little kingdoms to your lands? After all, you've beaten all those big kings and killed them and taken their lands. Why are you showing mercy to these little guys? Well, Samudra had good reasons to do it. These little kingdoms, like the kingdom in Bengal, and there were a bunch of others scattered around the plain of the Ganges, they had different cultures. Sometimes they had a different religious outlook. Sometimes they had different political systems. Some of them were proto-democracies, little republics. And sometimes they had different ethnicities. These were groups, these small border groups, where the Guptas just didn't know how to rule. They didn't have the cultural know-how. Better, easier, safer to let them carry on and just extract money from them. Not adding these little border states to the Gupta Empire also made geographic sense. The big kingdoms up and down the Gangetic Plain, you can get to them really quite easily. There are no massive rivers or massive mountains in your way. And in fact, that's probably why empires of northern India always start based on the Ganges, because it gives you good access to all the areas around you. But these little border kingdoms, they're all in geographic cul-de-sacs, ends, isolated, not easy to get into or out of. Better just leave them alone and take the money from them. But maybe Sumudra wasn't thinking of those practical things. He was thinking of the age-old advice, given to kings from all the way back in the Mauryan era. Keep a ring of buffer states around the core of your empire. Let them suffer any blows that fall, and then you can respond from a healthy position. Now, some historians say that Samudra didn't want to conquer these little border kingdoms because they were Mlecha country, the land of barbarians and outsiders. And there are certain ritual impurities that get involved if you go and conquer those lands. Even the name that Samudra gives these kingdoms, border kingdoms, marks them out as Mlecha territory, in the Sanskrit. This actually, this explanation doesn't ring true to me, whatever the religious law book said about ruling these territories, Guptas were really quite happy to conquer lecture territory and to rule it. Samudra had plenty of other reasons other than religious purity to let the border states lie. So he started conquering these border states and letting the kings rule them and extracting tribute. First, he went into Bengal and took that, and then the army carried on east up into Assam there he conquered a small kingdom. The kingdom was famous for its sandalwood, so it was a good source for trade. Actually, Samudra didn't let the leader lie there because there wasn't really a leader of that kingdom that he trusted, but he still didn't want to kind of add it to Samudra Gupta territory. He didn't want to add it to the empire. So he found a leader for himself, a man who shared his religious leanings, but probably a local man, a man from Assam. And he raised this Assamese man to become the new leader of that kingdom. This new king, put on the throne by Samudra himself, was so grateful that he named his own son after the emperor, Samudra. And he even named his own daughter-in-law after Samudra's wife. I'm not entirely clear on how you get to name your daughter-in-law, but there you go. The army went on, further up into Assam. It also got into Nepal. For all appearances... Samudra seemed to be making sure that he had firm control of the land route. There was a land route that skirted the Himalayas through the hills of Assam and into China. Nowadays, the route's still there, but it's too dangerous to take. Plenty of political struggles up there, but it's exquisitely beautiful. After he'd cleared out the trade route to China, Sumudras took his army upstream again and conquered a bunch of monarchies on the north and the east of India in the Gangetic Plain. And also some of those old republics, the small proto-democracies we've talked about across the podcast. One of the most famous of these little proto-democracies were the Malavas. The Malavas were a small group of people, but they'd basically been around in India forever. And they always seem to be tremendously unlucky. Because whenever any great invader comes into India, they're always right there in the way. When Alexander the Great romped through India, the Malavas were there, in the Punjab, right in their way, and Alexander thrashed them. After that, they moved west to Rajasthan. And then, when the shakas came, they were right there, in the way of the shakas and they were beaten soundly again. So they moved towards central India, Madhya Pradesh, and they put their capital in the hills near Jaipur. A defensible, strong place, nowadays scattered with forts. They set up a nice kingdom there with a thriving economy, judging by the number of coins that are around. But Samudra was not interested in this long history, or perhaps he just thought he'd add to it, so he came along and he conquered and he made them pay all kinds of taxes. Hopefully that gives you a bit of a flavour of these small little kingdoms that Samudra was beating. In addition to the mainstream kingdoms, relatively mainstream small kingdoms, these border territories, there were also forest kingdoms kingdoms hidden in the the depths of the forest, and Samudra gave these the same treatment. Except that they were not only required to pay all kinds of taxes, they were also required to deliver the produce of the forest, and to make a promise to help Samudra's army pass quickly and safely through the forest whenever he wanted. Samudra was going to call on that promise, because he planned to lead his army right through the forests. But that's a story we're going to pick up in the next episode. let's try to get a little bit better acquainted with Samudra the man. Samudra is called, as I said, the Napoleon of India. And we're going to take a, a good look at this comparison between him and Napoleon. Now, bear with me on this. I know that the comparison isn't meant that seriously. and People, when they say it, just seem to mean that Samudra's the sort of person who did a lot of conquering and so is Napoleon. I mean, fair enough. I actually find it useful, though, to think about the comparison between Samudra and Napoleon despite the fact that they, become, they come from such different cultures and different times, maybe because of that fact. From the angle of a modern ruler with European enlightenment sensibilities, we can throw fresh light on what we know about Samudra. We can see the surprising features more clearly. And without the help of that sort of wishy-washy talk you get when you're talking about the concept of kingship, as academics often do. Well, comparing Napoleon to Samudra helped me think about Samudra more clearly. Maybe it will help you. First, though, cards on the table. I am not a Napoleon fan. There's this really good history podcast called the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast. It's a conversation-based podcast uh, from Cameron Riley and David Markham. I really enjoyed it. In fact, I listened to it as I was driving around in France. I didn't agree, though, with pretty much any of it. Because they paint Napoleon as this very positive figure, always hand, had his hand twisted. When he was invading a country, is because he was forced to. He was never the aggressor, according to them. He was spreading freedom with the Napoleonic Code, according to them. At one point, they even speak rather dreamily of Napoleon invading England and putting it to rights. I think they were joking. It's a real sincere pleasure, a thrill, to listen to people you disagree with so profoundly and learn so much. Anyway, I don't see Napoleon in that positive light. Down the street from where I'm talking now, there's a statue of a chap called Edmund Burke. And Edmund Burke was the philosopher who hated the French Revolution and Napoleon. And I'm much closer to his view. I just see Napoleon as the man who caused the death of more than a million people and didn't do enough good to start balancing all those deaths out. So when someone calls Samudra Gupta the Indian Napoleon, it doesn't really seem like a compliment to me. But that's not the point here. For our purposes, Napoleon is just an enlightenment ruler, and we're going to compare Samudra with him. We're really more interested in Samudra. So now my cards are well and truly on the table, let's get back to focusing on Samudra using the light of Napoleon as a comparison. Napoleon liked music. In fact, he liked foreign music the best, Italian music. He didn't play any instruments himself, he liked to sing the occasional revolutionary tune, but when he sang, he was uncomfortably out of tune he was no great musician. That wasn't a problem for him, though. It wasn't part of his political ambitions to be a musician. Being a musician just wasn't part of being an Enlightenment emperor. It was a distraction. Music was something for his day off, away from work. For Samudragupta, things couldn't have been more different. Kings and emperors in India often boasted about being master musicians, but Samudra took the boasting a couple of stages further, and then one notch further again. He was better, the poet says, than the legendary musicians Narada and Tumburu. Narada was the sage of the gods and the first person to hear the laws of music, and Tumburu was the first singer. Samudra had improved on both of them, apparently. Actually, according to one of my favourite stories, that wasn't such a big boast. Narada. The sage, he knew pretty much everything, but according to one story, he was only a mediocre musician. Apparently, he kind of sung slightly out of tune, a little bit of Napoleon, and he played okay, but not amazingly. But he kept on boasting to everyone about how he was such a great musician. Lord Vishnu came to him and took him to a house. And in the house were these human figures, but they were disfigured. Their limbs were all bended and twisted. Their feet were turned in the wrong direction. Vishnu told him, go on, ask them who they are and why they're here and why they're so twisted. So the sage went into the house and he asked them, who are you? Why are you here? Why are your bodies all twisted? And they said, we are the ragas, the raginis, the scales or something like the scales. The scales that you've played, but you've misplayed us. You've fiddled around, you've distorted us, you've bent us out of shape. The sage was horrified. He fled. He went to Vishnu and he begged him, play the music correctly. Fix these distorted figures. So Vishnu played the music correctly. The ragas and raginis, they came to life. So, according to that tale, Narada's not that good a musician. He's just a big boaster. But I'm pretty sure Samudra wasn't thinking of that particular story when he said he was better than Narada. Samudra claimed to be a great musician. The point is that it was part of Samudra's idea of being a king, being an emperor, that he would be a great musician. It wasn't incidental to his being emperor. It wasn't something to do in his spare time. It was part of being an emperor. That's a thought that just would never occur to Napoleon any more than it would occur to Barack Obama. Samudra played. He even depicted himself playing on a coin. And on the coin, he's not dressed in the fine garments of the king. He's dressed in the simple garments of a musician. And he sits in an unkingly way, relaxed, cross-legged on the floor, playing the lyre. And what's true for music is true for poetry too. Napoleon liked poetry, he liked consuming it at least, but he didn't think of writing it for public consumption, so far as I know. But like the kings in southern India we've talked about, Samudra himself was a poet. Samudra boasted of writing such great poetry that he left all the other poets miles behind. We thought that none of Samudra's works had come down to us, that all of them had been lost. In 1941, though, a text came to light. Just three leaves of text. And written on them, an introduction to a much larger work. A work that's supposed to have been written by Samudra himself. Thrilling stuff. Everyone's hairs are on end. Sadly, though, it's a forgery, and a modern forgery at that. The events on it are just copied from what we know about Samudragupta, Gupta. They're definitely not real. If any of Samudra's poetic works still survive in some archive somewhere, they've yet to be discovered. Samudra was different from Napoleon in other ways, too. When Napoleon wanted to go a-conquering, he looked for a reason to go to war. A so-called causa belli. Oh, well, I have to attack Russia because they've become friends with our enemies, so let's go and invade Poland. Well, that Spanish prince hes being mistreated by his dad, and he's asking for our help, so we have to go and invade Spain. That sort of thing. And that's how European wars had worked since the Middle Ages. In fact, it's how wars work across the world today. The invader always needs to give a reason for the invasion, always like always has to make it look like they had to invade, that the hand was forced, even if they have to make up the reason and it's all a lie. That's not how things worked for Samudra. Or in fact, for much of the ancient world. Samudra just tells us who he conquered, he doesn't tell us why. Not the slightest hint of a reason. And that's because in his world, no reason was really required. According to the ancient guide of Indian kingship, the Arthashastra, which Samudra may have well read, according to this guide, kings have a right to conquer other kingdoms. Not only a right, but a duty to conquer other kingdoms. And it wasn't just that guide. The law books, they said exactly the same thing. Now, don't get the wrong picture. It's not okay to just go and do what you want and invade who you want, whenever you want, if you're an ancient Indian king. According to these ancient law books, it's not okay for you to want to conquer other lands and add them to your own. The law books talk about three kinds of conquerors. The first are the Dharma conquerors, the virtue conquerors. Once they've won, they simply accept the submission of the enemy king and they put him back on his own throne. And if the enemy king has unfortunately been killed in battle, then you put his son on his throne or some close relative. That's the virtuous way to conquer. And then there's the sort of middle conqueror, not quite virtuous, but not wholly bad. They add the land or the money to their territory. And then at the bottom of the heap, the worst type of conqueror, the evil conqueror, they kill the enemy king. They take the enemy king's queen and they kill his sons too. That's not how a conqueror should act in general. The defeated king should be given back the throne. That's the ideal. This was an ideal which, as we've seen, Samudra didn't live up to, at least not in the snake wars. When he conquered those large kingdoms, the king was killed and the land was taken and added to the Gupta Empire. So it wasn't an ideal that Samudra lived up to all of the time, and particularly didn't live up to when he was forming the heart of his empire up and down the Ganges Valley, but it was an ideal he seems to have had. He lived up to it much more closely after he'd secured that core kingdom area. All those smaller kings, he gave them back their thrones. And part of the reason he was giving them back their thrones was because that was the appropriate response of a conqueror in ancient India. And as we're going to see in the next episode, he's going to continue this policy, giving kings back their thrones with increasing generosity as his campaigns go on. Let's dig a bit deeper on these reasons for going to war, by thinking about religion. Now, Napoleon, he was a secular conqueror. He was secular in the French sense. His main dealings with religion were either when he tried to abuse it or when he tried to crush it. For example, he tried to abuse it when he offered to make all of his troops Muslim just to please his Egyptian allies. He tried to crush it when he kidnapped Pope and he robbed the Catholic Church of all of its assets. In Napoleon's mind, religion was a tool to manipulate people. Or as a threat to be wary of. It was either an obstacle or a weapon. What it wasn't was part of his worldview, part of his picture of why he was doing what he was doing. For Samudra, things were entirely different. For one thing, he seems to have been much more tolerant of religious sects, he patronised them, he didn't seem to see there's a threat at all. And for another, he was a devout member of one of them. As we've said, he was a follower of Brahminical orthodoxy, and in particular, a devotee of Vishnu in his various forms. And that's why he made the Garuda, the the bird, vehicle of Vishnu, the symbol of his empire. The Garuda symbol features on his coins, and it was carried on that standard before his armies. This whole devotion to Vishnu thing, that wasn't something Samudra did in his spare time, in addition to his conquering. His conquering was wrapped up with, was inextricably part of his devotion. And that's because Samudra saw himself or wanted to be the Chakravarti. Chakravarti is a tremendously important concept in ancient Indian history, political history especially. Chakravarti literally means something like turner of the wheel. Sometimes you'll see it translated as emperor or more often universal ruler, but it means a great deal more than that. It's fundamentally a religious idea, and to understand it, you have to go back to the ancient texts. Actually, not all the way back. If you go back to the oldest texts in Brahminical Orthodoxy, the Four Vedas, they don't talk about the Chakravati. They have their word for great rulers, Akarat, one king, Sarva-Bama, the great king of the earth, that sort of thing, but they don't mention Chakravati. But the word Chakravarti that appears a little bit later, in the Upanishads, These are later texts, but they're still very ancient, even by Samudra's time. The Chakravati is there described as someone who holds sway over a circle, a chakra of kings. He's someone who's conquered the whole world and has it in his sway. And it's a religious, not merely a political thing. It's intimately connected with sacrifice. Being any sort of king or emperor was, actually. For example, if you wanted to become an emperor, a Samrat, then you had to do the Drink of Strength Ceremony, or the Drink Food Ceremony. Actually, let's talk about that ceremony. To become an ancient Indian emperor, you will need 17 days free time, 17 chariots, and 17 vessels. Oh, and of course, you need an empire to be emperor of. There are a huge bunch of events going on in these 17 days, including a chariot race with the 17 chariots. And, as would-be emperor, you, of course, are expected to win the chariot race. But I fear I'm treading on the History of Indian Philosophy podcast toes here, so I'm going to leave any further description of the ceremony to them. So, that was the grand ceremony for becoming Samrat, emperor. But being Chakravarti, that was something even beyond being emperor. And it was linked to the greatest, the most lavish of all sacrifices, the horse sacrifice. That required a lot more than 17 days. It required an entire year. And it required a lot more than 17 chariots. It required a whole army. And in addition to that, a huge host of animals, wild animals and tame animals and lots and lots of money. Being Chakravarti was a grand religious post. Actually, the idea of Chakravati changed around this time, around Samudra's time. It got linked up with the worship of Vishnu. One of the symbols of Vishnu is the chakra, the circle. So it's fairly natural that the Chakravati came to be associated especially with Vishnu. And according to this spin on the idea of the Chakravati, there is a Chakravati born into each age. And they are the essence of Vishnu. They are invincible in combat. They enjoy wealth, happiness, fame, and victory. They are more powerful than the sages, and they're stronger than the gods. So when Samudra was conquering, just as when he was enjoying his poems or his music, he was pursuing this Vishnu ideal of Chakravati. He performed the horse sacrifice himself. Now, around this time, lots of people claimed they performed the horse sacrifice, some of them even boast of having performed it many times over. Those Nagas, the one who Samudra had beat so soundly, they boasted of having done it ten times. Now, a lot of historians think that's only plausible if the Nagas performed a sort of abbreviated, shortened version of the horse sacrifice. And Samudra seems to have thought that too, because he tells us on that pillar that he brought the horse sacrifice back. The implication seems to be that when Samudra performed the horse sacrifice, he did the full thing. No shortcuts for Samudra. And then, when all of his conquering was done, Samudra boasted that his fame would go up to the heavens and purify the three worlds. So Samudra is a man who sees himself as Vishnu incarnate, a god on earth and a player up in heaven who's thought to be human only because he happens to choose to follow human customs. Nothing could be more radically different to the Napoleon-like rulers of recent times. But before all of that, before his fame ascends to heaven, Samudra's got more conquering to do. The north, the east and west are under his control now. It's time to turn south. Samudra will lead his army through the forests and down the coast to south India, But that is a story for another episode. Every week we read something from the original sources, just to get a feel of how things are. Last week we read from the inscription on that pillar we mentioned in this episode, and we'll probably read again from the pillar inscription, next week. It's quite a long inscription. But I thought that this week we'd read from a much less well-known inscription by Samudra. This is an inscription in Iran, that small little town which uh, Samudra conquered, that one that's in the neck of the, of the river. I quite like this Iran inscription. Like the Allahabad inscription, it's got lots of parts chipped away most of the inscriptions from this time do. So there are going to be a lot of something, something, somethings in this. But in between those something, something, somethings in this inscription, you begin to get a sense of the person, Samudra. You begin to get a sense of his idea of how he's related to the gods, and you get some personal details about his wife. And it goes something like this. There was Samudragupta, equal to the god Dhanada in pleasure and equal to the god Antaka in anger, by whom the whole tribe of kings upon the earth was overthrown and reduced to the loss of wealth of their sovereignty. Something, something, something. He was satisfied by devotion and by policy and valour, by the glories consisting in the consecration and beswinkling that belonged to the title of king. He was a king whose vigour couldn't be resisted by whom was married a virtuous and faithful wife, whose dowry was provided by his manliness and prowess. He was possessed of an abundance of elephants and horses and money and grain, who delighted in the houses of something, someone, something, and who went about in the company of many sons and grandsons whose deeds in battle are kindled with prowess, whose something, something, something very mighty fame is always circling round about, and whose enemies are terrified when they think, even in the intervals of dreaming, of his something, 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 that are vigorous in war. And that's where we're going to leave Samudra for now, because that's all for this week. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and if you have been enjoying the episodes, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snehal Siddhu Memorial Fund. The details are on the website. There's a link to it in the description of this episode. Have a great week. Take care.